welcome to a new episode of the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. I'm your host, Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I talk with Dr. Megan Sullivan about her book, The Good Life Method. The book, which is based on a wildly popular course at the University of Notre Dame, prescribes philosophy as care for the soul, teaches us to ask stronger questions about God and what makes a life worth living. It's a conversation about wisdom, love, and sadness, and one that I found very nourishing to my own soul, and I hope that you will find it that way too. We thank you, as always, for tuning in. If you've ever read the biblical story of Job, you know it follows a man who loses everything, his wealth, his health, and his family. In the aftermath of great tragedy, he weeps, worships, and wrestles with God. Job's friends come to comfort Job, to be with him in his pain, but as soon as they hear the way that Job is talking, they become God's defense attorneys, and in so doing, they push Job closer to the edge. He calls his friends sorry comforters. They offer us a clear example of how not to help a struggling person. Henry Nouwen writes, To be a teacher means, first of all, not to deny, but to affirm the search, to allow the painful questions to be raised. This means that we must constantly avoid the temptation to be easy defenders of God, the church, the tradition, or whatever we feel called to defend. We are constantly in danger of becoming like Job's friends anxiously avoiding the painful search, and nervously filling the gap created by questions. I sometimes tell my students that there are two kinds of people that don't like to ask questions. Those who don't think there are any answers, and those who think that they already know all the answers. But if you long for truth, and if you want to serve other seekers and strugglers, you can't be afraid of asking questions. The big questions, the hard questions, the painful questions. Indeed, often the thing we need most when we ask the questions is someone to sit with us, to walk with us, to be there for us, to join us in the quest for truth. Our podcast guest today is something of a specialist when it comes to helping people ask the big questions of life, which is to say, she teaches philosophy to undergraduates. Dr. Megan Sullivan is a professor in philosophy at the University of Notre Dame, where she also directs the wildly successful God and the Good Life program. With co-author Paul Blaschko, she's the author of a book called The Good Life Method, which prescribes the philosophical method as a way of helping students face the questions of how to live and what makes life meaningful. She was recently our guest at Dort University, and it was my privilege to sit down with her for an interview. To that, we now turn. So I'm joined now by Dr. Megan Sullivan. Megan, thank you so much for joining us on the In All Things podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been so fun being out of Dort. Well, we've loved having you here. And I'm wondering if you could start by telling the story of this popular course that you and your colleague, Paul Blaschko, developed at the University of Notre Dame, where you teach. Uh, It is the most popular undergraduate course on the Notre Dame campus, God and the Good Life. And that resulted in your book, The Good Life Method. Could you tell a little bit of that story? Sure, of course. Uh, So 2015, 
I had just gotten tenure at Notre Dame, so I just gone through this process of both me and Notre Dame deciding we were going to go the distance, <laughs> we were going to stick it out. And I had been teaching our really large intro to philosophy course for a few years before that. And I'd gone away, I'd gone to Singapore for the year I was going up for tenure and kind of had some distance both from Notre Dame and from teaching and was thinking a lot about where I wanted to pour myself into the next phase in my career. And you're meant to say you want to start big research projects when you get tenure. And, and I had some of those in mind, but my thoughts just kept coming back to teaching. It mattered a lot to me that my youngest brother, Connor, was getting ready to go away to college. So I was having all of these conversations with my baby brother about how college can change you for better or for worse and how wonderful life is and how you get to set out on it on your own. I was also thinking a lot about my Notre Dame students, and I'd been feeling this unease for a while about whether or not we were giving them everything that we promised them when we mm. brought them to college. You know, we say you come to this wonderful Catholic university and you'll have a chance not only to study for a profession like engineering or business, but a chance to think about the big questions, to think about why you're here, what the ultimate good in your life is. And I felt like the way I was teaching my philosophy class was I was having my students memorize a bunch of philosophy facts and having them learn how to write like little philosophy journal articles. Yeah. But we weren't actually doing philosophy as care for the soul, which is what Plato and Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas and Augustine all thought philosophy could do for you. It could You have this very precious soul that you're entrusted to, mm -hmm. and you've got to spend your whole life caring for it. Uh, and so I got back to campus, and my co-author, Paul, was a graduate student at Notre Dame at the time. There was another graduate student, Justin Christie, and some colleagues who uh, had been having conversations with me behind the scenes about all feeling this kind of unease about the vision for how we were teaching philosophy. And we joined forces and decided to basically rip our intro philosophy course down to the studs and build a course completely around the premise that in 14 weeks, a freshman at the University of Notre Dame should have the space and support and intellectual coaching from these great philosophers throughout history to put down an initial stake, write out an initial theory about what they believe is their goal in life and how they're getting from the people that they currently are to that goal. Hmm. And so the course is designed not around exams or around term papers, though we do have plenty of opportunities where we uh, investigate how much philosophy the students are learning. But the core activity is students drafting what we call a philosophical apology. It's not It's not like, oh, I'm sorry for right. my philosophy, Qu yeah. quite the opposite. It comes from Socrates, who famously issued his apologia's defense of his life in front of a jury of Athenians who wanted to kill him. And there have been men and women throughout history who have felt called to write down in, uh, like in, in, a, in an essay form where they feel fundamentally called to be in life and what ideas and experiences are inspiring that vision and how they deal with objections and challenges and to share it with their peers and their loved ones. And this is what we help students do. We help them draft this long essay and then learn how to have these conversations about the the ultimate meaning in life with their friends and family members. And we think that's you know the great gift of a philosophical education, at least in college, is starting on the path to, to being able to 
do that kind of thinking about your life. Yeah. So I love that. That's not just a matter of me thinking for myself, but it's in dialogue with others and indeed in dialogue with those who have formed me, those oh, who are absolutely. at home, those who I continue to be in relationship with. It also raises the question of, uh, you know, philosophy departments in many places are really struggling. Uh, some schools are cutting the departments. Others are struggling to recruit majors. But the success of your course does show that it is possible to have these robust philosophical discussions on university campuses. And as you point out in the book, college students are wrestling with what are deeply philosophical questions about meaning and purpose. So I wonder if you could help us. What do you think is the disconnect between the discipline of philosophy as it's sometimes practiced or the way we think of philosophy or its value and the concrete struggles, the philosophical struggles of the students that you're encountering? So philosophy for you know the last 2400 years has had a bit of a marketing problem or an image problem. <laughs> uh, and I do think that this will always be the lot in life for folks who want to wrestle with big moral and spiritual questions. Jesus knew this better than anyone is sometimes you're a little bit ahead or a little bit at 90 degrees of the culture. And uh, you have to, if you're called to be a philosopher, to be a philosophy professor, you have to really be willing to courageously dig in and defend your practice in some cases to people who maybe don't see the value of the work anymore, and in other cases to change your ways and realize that the profession is, has gone off of the beaten path or maybe our values need to be revisited. I know so many fantastic philosophy professors working at all kinds of different colleges and universities right now. And in fact, working on this good God in the Good Life project has brought a lot of people into my orbit, uh, faculty members who are like, absolutely, this is why I felt called to become a philosopher in the first place, to be able to work with students on this idea of caring for their souls. So I think that there are a lot of absolutely wonderful philosophy faculty members out there but there is this persistent marketing problem. When people think about philosophy, they think about maybe one of two things. Either these books that are in the philosophy section of Barnes and Nobles that you might pull off the shelf, like Nietzsche's Ecce Homo or another another like great title from history. And you pull the book off and you start to read it and you get three pages in. You're like, <laughs> I do not know what this person is talking about. I have no context to get anything of value out of this. Uh, and that's one problem is philosophy is not nearly as approachable as a topic as, say, history or positive psychology. Another problem is sometimes the philosophers. Uh, we will come across as very abrasive or come across as prosecutorial or debaters. Philosophers get interviewed about things and they put forward extraordinarily counterintuitive claims and then argue that anybody who disagrees with them is a fool. Um Neither of those are helping build trust for students and their families in the study of philosophy, which is absolutely essential to a great education. And I think where, if God and the good life has made any difference in this and whatever it is, it's, you know, it's very small because this challenge is so big for the discipline. I think it's been a really nice reminder that faculty members who are excellent scholars who are working within departments and who who really have a heart for their university and their students can build classes that change the lives of 18 and 19 year olds that those students will love that's frankly at the end of the day for them not about intellectual posturing not assuming that like philosophy is the only major worth studying but really premised on this idea 
that absolutely everyone has uh, ought to have an opportunity to reflect on why they're here, what they love, what their most deepest values are, and that colleges and universities can build into their curriculum those opportunities to support in an intellectually serious way students doing that work. And I think I've been very fortunate that Notre Dame has been willing to accompany me on being outspoken about this and not saying that philosophy courses have to be just always an accessory to vocational training or to training for a profession, but in fact, we should demand everything of our university education. Students should be training for their careers, but they should also be getting just thoroughly immersed in the big questions of life. And uh, any of our universities, if we set our aspirations high enough, can be able to do that. Mm. Yeah, that's lovely. I wonder if we could get into the method of this course and the book and to do that by way of contrast with another popular course that's resulted in another popular book, it's this book, Designing Your Life, that comes out of Stanford, popular course there. And you, early in the book, sort of contrast these two methods. This book draws from design theory, as we might maybe expect from Stanford, to help students think about the shape of their life. And so I wonder if you could talk a bit about these two approaches, the good life method, the design theory method and how they're different and why maybe philosophy has something to offer that design theory doesn't? Yeah, this is a great question. And I have huge respect for Burnett and Evans, the two faculty members that designed the Design Your Life course. It's reached a lot of students at Stanford uh, and been inspired by some of the techniques that they use to make students really practice what they preach in that class. Every college and university has a culture, has a set of values and norms, explicit or implicit, that are that community's vision of the good life and the good of an education. In fact, if you're in the education business, you have to have an idea of what goals and what the good life is, because what are you educating students for, if not that? Mm -hmm. Stanford has its vision of a good life that... Uh, not every, certainly not every faculty member or student agrees to, but it's part of the culture of where they're located. Very much interested in innovation, in technology, in building amazing products like the iPhone and bringing them to market, making things that are beautiful and fun. And the Design Your Life course you can see is an outgrowth. It's The thing that's genius about it is it's playing to something that Stanford students are already going to be really excited about. It's the reason they went to Stanford is to be part of this culture that everything is around um, design and in particular product design and business. Mm -hmm. I think a challenge for a course like that is many young people today think of themselves reflexively like a product that's being brought to market. Like my goal is to become the kind of person who's hireable for this great job. With the your kind brand. Of, and With my your, personal yeah, brand, right, person, uh, yeah. which is on like TikTok yeah. now. Hmm. And um, with my skills and training. And, and Evans and Burnett, they disavow this in their course. They really encourage students to try to reflect more seriously about what ultimately motivates them and what they love. But for better or worse, the, the setup of the course sort of honors this anthropology where people already believe that, mm. you know, their products have been, they've been trying to get into a university like Stanford. They probably started in sixth yeah. grade preparing themselves to be marketed to a college. And mm. each step in the process, they're thinking of themselves in this, I think, objectified way. And the, you know, design principles that you learn at the D school at Stanford are 
are tested against their ability to sell iPhones or to sell cryptocurrency or to develop new medical devices, they aren't necessarily beholden to boundaries or limitations that we think are really important to a good human life. Everything's about testing and experimentation and moving and openness. But are there certain aspects of a good life, certain kinds of moral and spiritual commitments that we think are fundamental and you couldn't even really experiment with them if you wanted to? That's a question I have. You know, there's something, there are certain topics that design thinking just can't really get into the way philosophy and theology can. Hmm. At a place like Notre Dame, I mean, our course certainly has its limitations, but at a Christian school, there's also just a different starting point about uh, who these students are fundamentally that we're teaching, what are their deepest needs, which kinds of needs can be met with an education, and which kinds of things, frankly, can't. I feel very called with my students to push back on this idea that their products being yeah. designed for the market. Um, mm. And, you know, honestly, and it get, I'll be honest, Justin, it gets harder, I think, every year. I feel I teach a lot of freshmen. I feel called to spend a decent amount of time in the first act of our class helping them just realize that they have infinite value that has mm. nothing to do with the fiery hoops they've being asked to they're being asked to jump through in this phase of emerging adulthood but instead for them first to just hear from adults who uh who they take seriously and trust that I don't see them that way even mm. if they implicitly believe this about themselves because of our systems and that my greatest hope for them is that we graduate them as you know, free people with a lot of options, but who don't see themselves or others that way either. And so that's where I think we should pay close attention. There's these happiness courses. They're popping up everywhere right now with good reason. I mean, the Surgeon General of the United States tells us that d despair is one of the greatest public health problems facing our country right now, far more serious than smoking. Mm. Uh, we know that there's a challenge. We think young people have been acutely affected by it because of the pandemic and because of all the disruption that they've experienced. A lot of universities are stepping in to try to offer curricula that address it, but these there are tacit philosophical assumptions behind these, these courses. Yeah, I wonder uh, when students or others who have gone through this content of the good life method, I'm even you know thinking of about a method, yeah. how, how easy it is to think of that as an an exercise in self-optimization or self-improvement. And I'm thinking about this New Yorker article, Improving Ourselves to Death, where this idea of self-optimization, where we become the best version of ourselves or something like that. I wonder what are the things within the good life method that sort of push against the, the relentless drive that we have to optimize ourselves um, in contemporary sense. I'm like, I'm wearing a Fitbit yeah. watch, you know, I'm, I'm counting my steps, exactly. you know, I'm I doing, got my I'm, Apple watch. Yeah, I'm, doing I'm a, almost I'm, closed my circle. That's right. Yeah. I'm wondering, I just, it just told me that I needed to get up and move around and I'm not going to, <laughs> but you know, we always, we sort of always are telling ourselves we need to become better versions of the fantasy self we're always failing to become. And so what are the things that the good life method or the philosophical method has intrinsic to it that sort of help us resist the, the tide of this drive to self-optimization? Good. So, so the title of the good life method, it comes from Aristotle, this throwaway passage. Aristotle, the great Greek philosopher, you mm -hmm. know, 2,300 years ago, teaching his class about the good life. He pauses about two thirds of the way through his ethics course and tells his students, here is our method. We take what the philosophers have said, mm 
and we put it up against facts and life. Facts mm. and life are like the real world that you live in and the life experiences that have shaped your philosophy. And if they harmonize, then we're doing a great job. Then philosophy is going well. But if they can't harmonize, if the philosophers are telling you one thing and your vision about how directing, you're directing your life is going a really different way, then so much the worst for philosophy. Like philosophy has to start right. again. Yeah. Uh, and I've I love that passage. It comes uh, it comes like two thirds of the way into Aristotle's course on the good life. And I bring this up because in response to your question, if you think we're obsessed with self optimization, the ancient Greeks were obsessed obsessed. Mm. If you've ever had the opportunity to visit Greece or Italy and go visit ancient like polices or villages. They were exercising constantly. They were obsessed with making improvements in their educational systems. You know, they would build new schools of thought at the drop of a hat if they thought that something could be moderately better. They were super into change and innovation. And Aristotle, as a teacher of the good life in that kind of mix, was very thoughtful about how that kind of innovation could become an idol or a distraction for people, or at least they could miss some really important questions about human existence, in particular questions involving what the Greeks called the life of contemplation. Hmm. So the life of contemplation are the kinds of goals or functions that a person can have in life that are endless, like you can never accomplish them. You can't even measure the rate of accomplishment for them. They involve something that's absolutely distinctive about humans compared with other animals, namely our ability to wonder, or to reflect, or to think and contemplate. And the Greek philosophers debated constantly what, like how you fit contemplation into the rest of your good life. Mm. So they thought there's plenty of regimens you could do to make yourself more courageous or more athletically fit. They give tons of diet advice. You read the Republic or the Nicomachean Ethics, you, got, you get lots of weird advice about how much you should be drinking alcohol and what you should eat. I mean, they were just as obsessed with the optimization culture as we are. But one area where they paused, and I think we should as well, is they always pause to ask this question about, are there certain goods in life that can't be subject to this constant training, constant action, constant optimization? And they really true be truly believed that there were. What, how exactly you name those things? In a contemporary Christian context, we would say, yes, the, the goods of prayers, a prayer, the good of like lovingly contemplating people in your life, the good of reflecting on the story of your life so far. These are things you can't, you're... Apple couldn't make a watch that could measure these mm. things if they wanted to. I mean, I'm sure Apple will release some app that's like, how often have you prayed? And yeah. can you pray fast enough? Yeah. Is somebody <laughs> praying faster? Close your prayer circle today. Yeah. But if you do that, you're just kind of missing the essence Point. of yeah. what this is as an activity. And so the one thing that makes philosophy and theology distinct from these design your life, positive psychology approaches to the good life is a a deep, serious focus on the virtues of contemplation, where it's not just a matter of taking five minutes a day to quietly meditate, mm. but really thinking that there are aspects of a human soul that can't be optimized, that are not just like more activities that can be measured, but in fact are just parts of our good life that could take infinite amounts of time, mm. could be happening in a not rushed way. Mm. Uh, and, and actually describing what those are, that's why they pay philosophers the big bucks is because that's one of the most mysterious parts of our life. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's lovely. It has me thinking about even this morning, I was dr- I dropped my son off at school. It's about 15 minutes away. And then I was driving back. And usually I, I listen to an audiobook because why? how could you not fill that 15 minutes with, you know, learning time or something like that. And, and for some reason today, I, just, I think I just want to sit because I was feeling sad mm-hmm. um, because I'm realizing that I have only a certain amount of time with my son still, mm-hmm. you know, in the house and just kind of reflecting on that and thinking, what are this sadness I'm feeling? What are the right questions I should be asking myself about this experience I'm having? Right. And, um, and so one of the things you talk about a lot in the book is the skill of asking questions. How do we learn to ask questions about the stories we're telling ourselves to ask questions about the world that we find ourselves in. And I always say to my students, you know, there are two kinds of people that don't like questions, people who think there are no answers and people who think they know all the answers. And so what's the way forward? I want my students to search for truth. I sometimes wonder if they have enough of a stable nucleus to really not feel threatened by the, the rigor of asking these questions, right? About what do you really believe and why do you believe yeah. that? Um, and you also mentioned the way that sometimes questions can be used as power plays to sow confusions or what about this, you know. Um, and so how would you help us ask stronger questions? If that's a really key skill uh, in this good life method, how do we ask better questions about our, ourselves, about our lives, about the stories we tell ourselves? It's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> a strong question, you might say. Uh, and I'm glad you're thinking about this, your son in this way, because I think a lot of people think about questions in this like academic or courtroom sort of context and don't realize that in fact, they're probably asking philosophical questions all the time. Why do I feel sad dropping my son off at school? That's, Mm. that could be a very profound invitation to, to someone's philosophical or spiritual life. One way to think about it, and this gets back to this, you know, optimize everything culture that we live in right now. Most of the time when we ask a question, what we really want is a little bit more control or power. Mm. So I ask, how many more steps do I need to close my circle today? How many calories can I eat today? Those are maybe, you know, really on the nose examples. We ask um, questions maybe of the news, like we check the news, the weather report, is it going to rain tomorrow? And I want to know that so that I can have control over my body temperature and whether I get rained on. Mm. One thing that is important about a philosophical approach to questions is coming to appreciate that there are plenty of questions we might want the truth and, and an answer to, but are not going to give us any more power or control. Um, in fact, sometimes it might actually diminish our sense of control or agency to know the truth, to know the answer to that question. You asking yourself, how is it that I can love this small person so much and that I would have such little time uh, with him? That's not, knowing that if you, even if you discover the answer to that question, that's not going to mean that yeah. you can change aging or change the nature mm-hmm. of parenthood. But wondering about the question hopefully just enables you to love your son in a deeper way or, or answer is just one of the most profound questions about what it means to be a good parent. Strong questions, one signature of a strong philosophical question is it's a question where you want the truth more than you want control or power. Mm-hmm. And this comes from Socrates, who famously thought the Athenians had just given up on the truth in his own culture, and they only cared about power. Mm-hmm. So that's one way to know if you're asking a really interesting philosophical question is you want to know the answer, and it's not so that you can get a power up, um, but you just want to know. 
Another way you can think of strong questions is there are many times when we're asking other people questions that we really just kind of want to get them on record or we want to know some details so that we can then plan for ourselves around it. So like, will you pick me up at 3 p.m.? Or why did you say that horrible thing to your mother-in-law? <laughs> There's are things where I want to get you on the record to know what's in your mind, but it's mostly so that I can decide how I want to react. And those are kind of weak. Those, are, those tend to not result in great conversations. A strong question in a conversation, it's not only truth-seeking and kind of power-diminishing, but also you genuinely don't know the answer. You don't even know where, how, how the question might be answered by someone. And it's a way of caring about them. Like you'll learn something about them from what they choose to share. So examples of this in philosophy, and we work really hard with our students about how to be genuinely curious about other people's moral values and spiritual beliefs. Instead of saying, Justin, are you Christian? Which is a really weak yes or no question. I kind of want to get you on record so I can talk again, <laughs> which I do all the time. Um, instead say, you know, Justin, what's the earliest experience in your life where the question of faith has come up? Or mm -hmm. like, what, you know, I don't know what you're going to say to that. I don't know mm -hmm. anything about you. I don't know anything about your walk with God. I don't know how you're thinking about faith. Whatever you say next, I'm going to be surprised. I'm going to learn something I didn't know before. And there, you know, it's not going to give maybe maybe down the road it might give me more control over you in some way because I'll know more about your family. But really, I, I just want to know you. I want to know things about you. Um, philosophy practiced really well involves first having this kind of openness to the truth, and second, this willingness to be vulnerable and you know to quote Plato, follow follow the ideas where they lead you and not not think that you right now in this state of life are capable of controlling mm. everything. Mm. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. And you're talking about questions that seek control versus questions that move us into a space more of contemplation and attention and care. Mm -hmm. It makes me think there's this um podcaster, Lex Friedman, he's an MIT computer scientist, and he always at least it feels like a surprise to me at some point in the podcast says, what, what is the role of love in the human experience? You know, it's sort yeah. of this this question that sort of comes out of out of nowhere. You know, to me, it feels like, and yet it always leads to a fascinating response from whoever the guest is. And so I guess this is that moment where I ask, what is the role of love in the human experience? But you have a chapter on this. And in your <laughs> chapter, you talk about love as a virtue that we cultivate by working on our capacity for attention mm -hmm. rather than action. And I wonder if you could say more about that, or even if you could read uh, a passage from your book related to this theme. Absolutely. It was wonderful talking with so many of the Dort students today about the relationship between love, attention, and faith, because at least in the Christian tradition, love is the super virtue. It's mm. the moral truth by which every other moral insight or every insight we could possibly have about the good life is meant to be unlocked. And so it's the, it's the core of our contemplative lives. And philosophers have a ton to say about love, including the ancient Greek philosophers, and Jesus has a lot to say about love. The real trick is learning how to translate the those philosophical and spiritual teachings into our day-to-day -day life, and anybody knows this who's trying to live a good life. An idea, I'll tell you about an idea that I'm moved by, and then I'll share a little bit of the book, because one thing that we, me and Paul do in the book, and we require all of our students to do in class, is put their money where their philosophy is. So it's one thing to say that you endorse a philosophical view. It's another thing to, to show that you've paid attention to that happening in your own life. Mm. 
I think a lot about the virtue of love and think that God's love for us is manifest in the first instance in the incarnation. So this idea that's distinctive to Christian theology, that God himself would empty himself to enter into our lives, into our worlds, which are broken and so different than his, in order to show his profound love for us and ultimately redeem us. It's like the fundamental idea in Christian teaching about love. And it's one thing to say that on Sundays, it's another thing entirely to realize the truth of love requiring incarnation in your own day-to-day life. I think about the ways I've been loved by my own parents um, and the distinctive ways that that's shown up. And it does help you realize that true love requires this, what, what, what the Greek philosophers would have called unselfing or second selfing, this idea of letting your entire self be joined to another person to completely enter into their world in, in, a, in a loving and uncontrolling way. Uh, and I, I reflect on that a lot with my students. I talk a lot with my students about whether we even grasp Jesus's teachings about love as a virtue or what question, how to ask strong questions about that, because I really want them to spend the rest of their lives thinking about that. Um, and there's a passage in the book where I share, and I share this story with some of my students, one of the first times I realized that love had this kind of attention and incarnational element. So if you'll indulge me, I'll share the story. Yes, please. Is there an audiobook? There is an audio Did audiobook. you read the audiobook or is this your chance? You, so this is your chance to I know. Have, I'll tell you what, Justin. This is the Megan Sullivan audiobook for the first time ever of I know. If you want the full <laughs> Megan audiobook with all the southernisms and mispronounced <laughs> words, you should write to Penguin Publishers. Yeah. <laughs> There's an audiobook and it, we got to audition, me and Paul got to audition the readers and they ended up settling on a male reader. And I listened to the entire audiobook and I'll tell you it freaks me out cuz these are like my else. words yeah. that I poured over in the voice of somebody else it is totally bizarre like i know what he's gonna say next i feel like a psychic i know what he's gonna say next but it's not me and sometimes the inflection is wrong right oh my gosh yeah he didn't say eudaimony in the way that i would have preferred but here's a passage from the audiobook read by megan sullivan yes um And this occurs in the fifth chapter of the book where we talk about the role of love in the good life. And it's part of my philosophical apology. So it said we ask students to reflect on actual events in their life where philosophy has shown up or God has shown up and then to think about the meaning of it. So this is a passage where I started to realize some truths about the incarnation. When I was 11, I was part of a competition at my school called Furs, Fins, and Feathers. It involved choosing an animal to dress up as and delivering a monologue as that animal. As soon as the project was announced, I knew immediately what I needed to be. Great white shark. What more perfect spirit animal for a painfully shy, physically awkward fifth grade girl. I had undiagnosed vision problems, which my teachers interpreted as ineptitude. I was afraid of them, but I also wanted more than anything to finally impress them. I had a very short boy cut haircut. I ate only yellow foods. My favorite game was Lego Pirates, and I was just starting to grasp the horror that would be middle school. I dreamed of walking on stage, completely enclosed in a full body shark suit, life sized 15 feet with sharp teeth and cold, predatory eyes and fins. I drew the schematics where I'd need the holes to breathe, how the toothy mouth would open, 
and I shared my vision with the one person on earth I knew would understand the urgency of this mission. Liam Sullivan, my father, is not what you would call a crafty dad. He would patiently, gleefully explain the rules of tennis or golf or football to any elementary schooler, but none of his children shared his interest in sports. In fact, much of his parenting has involved trying to be part of the alien worlds of his three very different progeny. Here is the pragmatic thing to do when presented with an 11-year-old's detailed colored pencil drawing of a full-body shark costume. You should laugh, post it on the fridge, and then see what the local party store has in terms of fish masks. My dad took a long look at the drawings, furrowed his brow, and then he thought, upholstery foam. He bet that we could get the head big enough and light enough for me to carry if we covered it out of if we carved it out of upholstery foam. So we called his friend and we found ourselves early on a Saturday morning in an industrial park where cushions are manufactured. His friend helped us construct a four feet tall foam cylinder. There were armholes and breathing holes and a tapered, sharky looking mouth. We followed the specs of the drawing as best we could. We spent the afternoon back in our garage carving intricate teeth into that mouth, turning plastic Easter eggs into merciless eyes, gluing dorsal fins, spray painting everything bluish gray, adding a dribble of blood. We worked on the monologue, which contained some shark facts from Encyclopedia Britannica, some ruminations about being fierce, some of the directions of the assignment. We practiced being loud enough to be heard from under the layers of upholstery foam. Liam Sullivan has never felt the urge to eat the other children in his elementary school. He doesn't have any direct experience with what it's like to be an awkward preteen girl. His love is the capacity to understand enough what the world looks like from his daughter's vantage and to see it being a perfectly wonderful use of a weekend to make her dream into his own. We don't want to live our loved ones' lives for them. The second self theory from Aristotle involves being able to see our loved one's goals from the inside, to see why they are working toward them, and to participate in the process of them becoming the person with those virtues. In this case, it means seeing that your little daughter needs confidence and courage, and that a uniquely effective way for her to develop these virtues is to get to be a shark for a little while. That's beautiful. Thanks for reading that. I um, This has sort of taken a turn towards parenting, uh, maybe unexpectedly in some sense. And so maybe I'll ask this question about parents and passing on the faith. I wanted to ask a question. Maybe I'll ask both at the same time. So part of this class is God and the good life, right? So mm-hmm. students, when they take this class, know they will be reckoning with the question of God and what it might mean to believe or to entrust themselves to or to reject God in some sense. And I know that you have a whole range of places where students start with respect to that question and where they end up after taking the, the course their freshman year. And the goal is not necessarily to get them to believe. But I wonder about um, observations about the process as, as college students at Notre Dame wrestle with the question of God and end up different places. But then also this parenting aspect of it is I'm sure there are many Christian parents who worry about their children and their children's faith, whether they're at a private or public university, Mm -hmm. and they want their kids to 
to be safe, but they also want them to be brave. They want them to seek the truth and to ask questions, but they're worried that they might begin to question everything and lose their faith. And so I wonder, this is the second part of the question, what counsel you might have for parents who are sort of in that situation? So the first question is about what what are your experiences with students wrestling with faith uh, or the question of God? And then what might you say to to those who are invested in their lives and want them to end up in a particular place, but know that they don't have ultimate control over where they end up. My first piece of advice for parents, uh, and this comes as a as a college professor who teaches a lot of students their first year of college, is parents, give yourself a pat on the back. You're doing a great job. You actually are fantastic teachers and mentors for the people that you love. And it's just challenging. You know, you go through seasons of life. And I think for emerging adults, there's there's just so many decisions and aspects of formation that happen all at once when you're a teenager and in your early 20s. And so parents who are in the thick of it right now, one, just cut yourself a little bit of slack because this is a interesting, you know, this is the Olympics. You're in a big period right now. Uh, two... I think I speak on behalf of all of the professors that teach your students. We're incredibly grateful. I mean, I think I don't know any faculty member who doesn't think it's an extraordinary gift to be able to play this role in this chapter of a young person's life, especially with all of the wonderful formation that's happened before they get to us and getting to see where they go next. I mean, we're very grateful that these families trust us by sending people that they love most to be with us and to learn from us and take that responsibility very seriously. The first rule of teaching, which is easier said than followed, is to meet the students where they're at. It's easy to say. It's much harder for professors to set their egos aside and not want the whole class to be just about them and and really Mm -hmm. to center the students and where they're at. And when it comes to teaching courses about you know, faith, philosophy, theology, it's even more essential for you know, a well-formed, confident, 40-year-old Christian to not assume that my students are just little avatars of me, mm-hmm. but instead to realize that they have their own lives, their own questions that are burning in their hearts, and that the class will be really electric if it's built for them mm-hmm. and for the care of their souls. It's not built to just necessarily make them happy all the time. I, none of my students would accuse me of that. <laughs> but but to be just constantly thinking and centering them, which is really the root of love. The way I have philosophical conversations with my students and, you know, parents, let's be real, like they're much, your young people are much more willing to talk to strangers about these things than they sometimes are about their own family members. That doesn't mean you should stop trying at all. It just means, again, cut yourself some slack. The way I teach my God in the Good Life course We start with really mundane, quote unquote mundane, but still pretty hard good life questions. So how do you decide if you want to be part of a political movement? What role does money play in your life and how much of it are you going to need to be happy? And what I try to show the students is that they're already talking about those questions all the time, that there's philosophy and there's theology under those questions. And if they want to go there, they can go a little bit deeper. And they almost always do. They love it. And then we start to move from questions about, you know, life and society, jobs and work to questions about love and the good life. This love chapter that I just read from is what we always hit in the course right before they go away for fall break or spring break. 
And I want them starting to realize, whoa, okay, love is a lot harder. The, the questions around love and the good life are much harder than the questions around money and the good life. And to start to have conversations with people in their lives about their thinking on that. And I do that for a reason. One, if, if we can get them to having a serious philosophical conversation with me and with others about love and the good life, one, they're getting much more just open about the whole process of philosophy, the strong questions that we were talking about. But two, I want to spend the second half of the class at a place like Notre Dame talking about God and the good life. And once we add the possibility of infinite love into the equation or an omnipotent, morally perfect personal being who cares about you, some of the philosophical questions we were talking about earlier get a little easier, maybe, but some of them get significantly harder. Like, why do we suffer? How can we love other people if it requires this kind of vulnerability? Are we as morally well-formed as we think we are? And I want my students to come back, one, with enough space for them to trust me that I'm going to have those conversations with the same kind of open-mindedness and them-centeredness as we had the conversations about money two months ago. But two, for them to realize that you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. There are certain philosophical questions we feel called to wrestle with at certain points in our life. And if they're not there yet for trying to wrestle with these deep spiritual virtues, that's totally fine. I just want them to know that there's a method. You know, when when the time comes, there are philosophers that are going to meet them along the road, or there are ways of asking philosophical questions about scripture if they're starting to feel like they're hitting, you know, bumps in the road on their faith, where people are going to come along with food for the journey, and that they learned this the first year of college, that these resources were going to become available to them. But for parents, I would say, you know, be of good courage. Even if you're getting the silent treatment, professors get the silent treatment. Keep asking in a loving way. Keep looking for that inroads and really deeply listen to the little slivers of philosophical and spiritual information you get from these folks that you care about because you can always use those little pieces of conversation to build on something much, mm. much more substantial. Mm. We've been mentioning uh, sadness and suffering. You just mentioned suffering in your answer. and. Um, this is a part of the method, right? Is is facing sadness, facing suffering, and subjecting your faith, if you have faith in God, to the hardest questions that can be asked about Absolutely. about that belief, which is is the question of suffering. And in your book, you quote Stephen Colbert's interview with Anderson Cooper, and then also in the talk you gave today, you showed a clip from this interview between Colbert and pop star Dua Lipa, where she asks him how his comedy and faith inform each other, and he says something like. Laughter is the thing that keeps you from taking the fear you feel of the sadness and turning to evil devices. Mm -hmm. And if you can find a way to laugh about, um, because you know that the, the the sadness, the defeat, the death is not the end, uh, you can face it. And so I wonder if you could just share the good life method, uh, the philosophical method. How does it enable us to face suffering? And how does facing suffering, facing the sadness we feel in the car in the morning after we drop off our children or facing the suffering that inevitably comes to us in our life actually enable us to to live more beautiful lives more beautiful and whole lives if we don't run from the suffering if we don't run from the sadness absolutely if i if i could wave my magic wand and change one thing about how we often teach introduction to philosophy it's very, very common in a first philosophy course to introduce students to the concept of God, a morally perfect, omnipotent, loving creator, 
and then give them this argument, the problem of evil that says, if there are seemingly so many instances of pointless suffering in the world that God could have stopped, but he doesn't, then clearly God doesn't exist. And and usually we'll spend you know a few weeks in an intro philosophy course on how good is that argument? What are the moral assumptions it's making? And that it, you know it's interesting it's an interesting thought experiment it's an interesting puzzle to work through but i feel like oftentimes questions of faith are left there in an intro to philosophy course and it's a mistake because one the the major monotheistic world religions judaism christianity islam it's not like those traditions or ways of life are surprised to learn that they're suffering my gosh, you read the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, you read the book yeah. of Job, it's all suffering. You read the Gospels and especially reflect on Jesus's earthly life. There's a tremendous amount of injustice. In Islam, there's plenty of reflection about how tenuous our life is and how dependent we are on God because many of the ways that we try to insulate ourselves from suffering are just destined to fail. So first, I, I don't like that philosophers treat the problem of suffering this way because it seems to just ignore the vast amount of thinking that believers in God have put towards the question of suffering. And second, and this gets us back to Stephen Colbert, it ignores that there's a reality for very many people in their moments of suffering, that's exactly when they become aware of God's love for them and God's existence. And for the case of Stephen Colbert, we were talking about this in chapel this morning. Colbert was, I think, 10 years old, and his father and his two brothers died in a very tragic, very preventable airplane accident. You know, plane was taken off from Charlotte, North Carolina in foggy conditions and crashed because of pilot error, and he lost three beloved members of his family. And he's a famous comedian, very, very funny, you know, witty person, and he frequently gets asked by his celebrity guests to comment on the fact that he's still so overtly Christian. And he's not just an you know ordinary Christian, but he's somebody that went through tremendous suffering at a very young age and in a very unjust sort of way. And I love how he speaks very beautifully about how that moment, not only did it pose a philosophical, it didn't pose a philosophical challenge to his Christianity, but became this spark where at a young age he became aware of God's love. And then he spent the next, you know, 35 years trying to understand what that love meant. And it met him in this moment of acute suffering. So I also want my students, regardless of their faith walk or spiritual journey, to realize that for very many people, Faith is not ignoring suffering or trying to like defeat this dragon that is the argument from evil, which is, you know, it's an interesting philosophical problem. But for very many people, suffering is the fuel that promotes and deepens their Christian faith. And for Christians especially, it it'll be tied up in the fact that God himself knows suffering in ways that, you know, when it's happening to us, we can barely grasp, but we think, you know, you know, God can help us understand. It's also this kind of awareness of God's love that becomes present in suffering. That's one of the great mysteries 
of faith, but I want my student, I don't want my students to look for like an easy way out or to think, cause, cause we are going to face these acute moments of suffering. I, I, I hope and pray I never have to go through anything like what Stephen Colbert went through. I can't imagine the thought of losing one of my siblings is one of the saddest things I could possibly imagine. But we know that we're going to get these challenges in our life, and I don't want my students to think that when those challenge ha- challenges happen, they're suddenly going to face a particularly personal version of the problem of evil. It's it's just as likely that the faith that they're cultivating in small ways right now is going to rise and well up to meet them in mm-hmm. those cases, or at least that's the teaching of the Christian faith. Well, we've been talking with Dr. Megan Sullivan about her book, The Good Life Method with Paul Blasco and her course, God and the Good Life. And so I'm wondering, is there anything else that we should know about the course, how we can take it ourselves, or is there anything you're working on right now that we should know about? Yeah, this is great. So uh, please buy our book, <laughs> God and the Good, the Good Life Method. It's from Penguin, and it talks a lot about the course. It also talks a lot about me and Paul. And I always tell folks, I think the book is pretty interesting and fun to read, but if you get bored with any particular chapter, just skip ahead to another chapter. And um, it's very uh, it's very bite-sized. Right now, I'm writing a book about the parable of the Good Samaritan in the Gospel of Luke, and it's a book that's for my fellow philosophy professors and Mm. philosophy students, basically trying to show the ways you can take one of the parables, like Jesus is teaching about loving strangers, and use it as a basis for building a moral theory, which for a theology professor, you might be like, duh, of course you could do that. That's kind of, you know, it's different in philosophy. We tend to not treat Jesus as a philosopher or a philosophical source the way we would like Rene Descartes or Aristotle. Mm. And I really want to spend the next decade of my research career showing people that, that you know, that's too narrow and that actually there are all kinds of ways we can look to Jesus to provide really interesting philosophical arguments that's open to everybody to, to weigh and debate. And certainly the teachings about love matter a lot to me on that front. And the course itself is available online, correct? There, there is lecture content or things like that. You know, there's a we have a great web page, which we're always in the process of changing and messing with. But if you Google God in the Good Life at Notre Dame, you'll be able to find some of our course materials up there. Um, we also, if you go on YouTube, there's lots of greatest hits lectures for me and some of my colleagues. You can't take the whole course online, and that's a little bit like by design. I mean, we really do believe that philosophy is a deeply relational mm. uh a topic that you study and it's very, very much important for you to have great conversation partners and great teachers. So there's no, you know, MOOC version of God in the Good Life <laughs> or anything like that yet that I know of, who knows. Mm. But we do provide little bite-sized like hints and prompts. And you'll notice if you buy the book at the end of each chapter, we've got yeah. questions or experiments you might try out with people in your life to try to get a little bit deeper into the philosophy. Um and certainly, you know, for listeners, if they really love this stuff, encourage them to reach out. You can find my email at Notre Dame. I talk with all kinds of folks from all around the country who feel inspired. And it matters to me more than anything that the folks listening to this podcast and your students at Dort feel inspired that the life of faith and the life of reason are meant to be joined together. It's not always easygoing. There are all kinds of missteps, but there's absolutely no tension at all between pursuing the truth with your whole being Mm. and getting an excellent education and cultivating and growing this gift of faith that you've been given. And so anything I can do to help with that as a philosopher, you know, I find it to be uh, a great blessing to be doing that work. That's wonderful. So our guest again has been Dr. Megan Sullivan. 
Megan, thank you so much for joining us on the In All Things podcast. Thanks, Justin. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content helpful, please help us out by leaving a review or sharing with others. This week, we close with more original music from our friends, The Ruralists, a song that confesses the desire for certainty and security alongside doubt and loss. It acknowledges that sometimes it feels as if life is a joke. But there are different kinds of jokes and different kinds of laughter. And perhaps the laugh behind the joke is divine. Feel free to turn the dial or stay with us while the ruralists sing us out with a song in between from their album, Trying. If life's a joke, I've always hoped the laugh behind it is divine. And we've just misread the room. And what's the point? was not the point at all, it was too small. And the laughter was the truth. Is it a joke to be alive? Is it so serious to die, it seems to me? The truth is always Somewhere in between But here's the problem What I want is to believe with all my being In a sure and certain path I guarantee That all the choices that I've made will Like life is only simple man Cause wouldn't it be nice If all the wrongs and rights were clear to me Instead of always Some
Tears of joy and tears of pain, and it might be that they are.